All right, welcome back once again to the Counter Vortex with your ranter, Bill Weinberg, ranting at you in the wee hours of November 6th, 2022, from my apartment on Manhattan's Lower East Side. And it's come to my attention that on Saturday, November 19th, here in New York City, there's going to be an event entitled, quote, The Real Path to Peace in Ukraine. Negotiations, yes, capital letters, exclamation mark. Escalation, no, capital letters, exclamation mark, end quote. At the um, People's Forum here in Manhattan, drawing some very big name celebrities of the supposed anti-war left, which we shall enumerate and expose later. But first, let's note that this event is being chiefly organized by the Answer Coalition, the supposed anti-war group that actually carries portraits of the genocidal dictator Bashar Assad at their bogus anti-war demonstrations. Yes, Bashar Assad, who for a decade now has been bombing rebel-held territory in his own country, Syria, into rubble, massively targeting civilians and civilian infrastructure, even serially using chemical weapons. Yes, over and over. And Answer displays his portraits at their Orwellian anti-war rallies. All of this is documented. The photos are on the Counter Vortex website or can be found very easily on Google. And now they are similarly doing Putin's propaganda work on the Ukraine war, as we shall see. And this pro-war and pro-fascist position is all the more sickening for being sold in anti-war guys. And the uh, <clears throat> the blurb promoting the event at the People's Forum on the Answer website is just subtle enough to fool the ignorant. I read from the text, quote, the moment is now to inaugurate a new multinational grassroots movement to advocate for the end of the current war in Ukraine. The stakes are too real and the danger is too great for the peoples of the world to remain on the sidelines. Anti-war forces in the United States and across the world may have different analyses of Russia, Ukraine, and this tragic war, but we can unite around one thing. There is no road to peace if the U.S. government policy remains to obstruct negotiations and send endless weapons into the war zone, end quote. Ah, shut up, will ya? It wasn't U.S. pressure that ended the negotiations. It was the Buka massacre, in which at least 400 were slain by Russian occupation troops in that Kiev suburb. And when this was revealed, when the town was retaken by Ukrainian forces in April, President Volodymyr Zelensky accused Russia of genocide and broke off the talks. 
and more such massacres have been committed by the Russian occupation forces since then, and more still are threatened. And now, thanks to Western military aid to Ukraine, much more territory has been liberated from the occupation over the past weeks, and the aggressor is in retreat. And these people are calling for a cutoff of aid and essentially telling Ukraine, hey, it's not too late to surrender. This effort is aimed at allowing Vladimir Putin to seize victory from the jaws of defeat. This is not an anti-war position. This is utter subservience to the imperial ambitions of Putin's fascist regime. Returning to the text, quote, We, people of conscience, are coming together to demand that there be a radical shift in the direction of U.S. military and foreign policy. NATO expansion must end. Money must be spent on education, health care, and housing, not the war machine. We demand peace, not war. Join us, end quote. So, people of conscience would betray the Ukrainians to genocide. And by the way, scapegoat the Ukrainians for the defunding of education, health care, and housing here in the U.S. in xenophobic fashion. So uh, I probably can't go to this event because it's a bad time for me, but I hope that some adversarial voices are on hand to ask the difficult questions. E.g., what exactly is Ukraine supposed to negotiate? Whether they lose 15% of their territory, which is what Russia currently holds, with its population genocided, or 100%? Because Russia has already publicly declared that the annexed territory is not open for negotiation. And an area is retaken by Ukraine since the mass graves at Buka and Borodyanka were discovered in April. Yet more and bigger mass graves have been discovered at Izium and other towns in the Kharkiv area and satellite data has revealed mass graves in Mariupol, which remains in Russian hands. And before Zelensky broke off the talks after the Buka massacre was revealed, he'd been floating a proposal for Ukraine to abandon its aspirations to join NATO if the international community made equivalent guarantees for its sovereignty and security without it actually becoming a member of the alliance. So yeah, A negotiated solution might have been possible if Putin were actually interested in one instead of being wedded to an agenda of annexation and genocide and extinguishing Ukraine as a sovereign entity, which has been the open rhetoric of the Kremlin and Russian state media since the start of the invasion and is clearly Putin's war aim. Or, since the demands of these pseudo-peaceniks seem to be directed at the United States, do they advocate that the great powers negotiate the fate of Ukraine over the heads of the Ukrainians, as the great powers did with the Czechs at Munich in 1938? How did that work out? Not so good, as I recall. And this is not again, 
anti-imperialist. They are petitioning the United States to negotiate the fate of the Ukrainians. For them, it is all about great power politics and nothing about the Ukrainians, who are actually now fighting for national survival against a war of aggression by an imperial power. Seems to me the only principle that these people have is fealty to Moscow's foreign policy aims, full stop, and hence pro-imperialist. Okay, so um, headlining at this event, I believe via a video link from England, is none other than Jeremy Corbyn, whose name is spelled wrong, by the way, (laughs) on the Answer website, on the page promoting the event. They spell it with a B-I-N rather than a B-Y-N. And his name being given top billing at this event was noted by the uh, Daily Mail newspaper, which actually got a quote on the affair from Volodymyr Zelensky, president of Ukraine, from the article, which appears uh, November 3rd. Quote, ex-labor leader Jeremy Corbyn was last night branded one of Vladimir Putin's useful idiots by Ukraine's government for agreeing to speak at a Russian propaganda event in New York, end quote. And I'm sorry that it falls to the Daily Mail, a right-wing British tabloid, to call this out, but there's no reason to believe that the quote from Zelensky's office is not authentic. And at least the Daily Mail, if for its own cynical reasons, is paying attention to the sordid mess that is the contemporary anti-imperialist left, which is actually neither anti-imperialist nor left. Would that more legitimate and progressive sources were giving this event critical coverage. But here we are. All right, next on the lineup is Vijay Prashad. Another one who, uh, you know, I used to think was perhaps quasi-legitimate but I wrote him off in September 2015 as Russia was launching its massive military intervention in Syria and bombardment of rebel-held cities when Vijay Prashad appeared in a typical soft, squishy interview with Amy Goodman on Democracy Now! in a broadcast which, of course, included no Syrian voices, in which he told us that the slogan, Assad must go was anachronistic, quote, unquote. Yeah, the slogan that Syrians had at that point been fighting and dying for for four years was anachronistic, an implicit endorsement of the Russian war aim of shoring up Assad's then teetering regime beyond disgraceful. And again, he's only gone from bad to worse since then. Democracy Now! on October 3rd of this year featured yet again an interview with Vijay Prashad and Noam Chomsky, with whom he has been lately collaborating, tellingly entitled, quote, Noam Chomsky and Vijay Prashad on Ukraine, why U.S. must negotiate with Russia, end quote. Note the wording. The U.S., not even Ukraine, but the U.S., again, calling for the great powers to talk over the heads of the Ukrainians. 
and explicitly pro-imperialist position. This August 22nd, Jacobin featured a video presentation of Prashad and Chomsky on the new Taiwan state crisis, in which Prashad praised China's system as more productive and efficient than the U.S., supposedly causing the U.S. to lash out against China. Not a word about the perspectives of the Taiwanese and their desire to keep their democracy and autonomy under threat of Chinese military aggression. And Chomsky actually dismissively refers in this interview to Taiwan as a rock, quote, unquote, and implied that China has the right to rule it because it once did. Can you imagine Chomsky's outrage if some stateside writing had called Cuba, with less than half Taiwan's population, a rock, and implied that the U.S. has the right to rule it because it once did? Again, all about great power politics and respecting spheres of influence. A basically Kissingerian view of the world. Nothing about human rights or self-determination or the things that I used to think progressives were concerned with. I'll also note that on April 30th, 2021, Prashad had a piece on Counterpunch co-written with one Zhe Xiang entitled, quote, the U.S. is trying to light the match of Islamic extremism in China's Xinjiang, end quote. The piece appeared, of course, in the midst of the revelations about the mass detention of up to a million or perhaps more Uyghurs in re-education and forced labor camps, but they say very little about this, only referencing it obliquely as, quote, accusations by the United States government and its allies about genocide and forced labor in Xinjiang, end quote. Accusations which are dismissed as part of a U.S. information war against China, quote, unquote. But there's all this hyperventilation about, quote, Washington's jihad, end quote, strongly implying, rather than being so bold as to explicitly state, because there isn't any evidence whatsoever, that Washington was behind the supposed Uyghur terrorist group, the East Turkestan Islamic Movement, Etim, of which there is not even any evidence that it exists, much less that it is some creation of Washington. It seems to be the fabrication of Chinese state propaganda. In fact, it was for several years on the State Department's terrorist watch list until it was removed because having non-existent groups on the terrorist watch list was a tad too Orwellian, even for the U.S. State Department. And this piece in Counterpunch, while cynically failing to even directly mention the mass detention of the Uyghurs, was essentially serving as propaganda for it, implicitly justifying the internment as an anti-terrorist measure. And then there's all this crowing about China's development quote-unquote, of Xinjiang, without any acknowledgement that this development has meant massive colonization and usurpation of the territory's indigenous inhabitants, the Uyghurs. 
Okay, next on the list of panelists is Brian Becker, a member of the Central Committee of the so-called Party for Socialism and Liberation, PSL, the retro-Stalinist faction at the core of the Answer Coalition, better named the Party for Fascism and Dictatorship, just as ANSWER, which ostensibly stands for Act Now to Stop War and End Racism, is better rendered Act Now to Support War and Enable Racism. Becker, in the uh, various PSL propaganda organs, perpetuates the lie that Ukraine's 2014 Maidan revolution was a Nazi coup, quote-unquote, and runs to the defense of the Assad regime every time it carries out a chemical attack. Next is Eugene Perrier, also apparently a member of the PSL Central Committee and a former producer for Kremlin media mouthpiece Sputnik. Okay, next up is Medea Benjamin of Code Pink, who was a little bit more slippery and subtle than some of these others but is still serving the military aims of the Putin regime and aligning with its hard-right allies here in the United States. On October 12th, Medea Benjamin appeared on Democracy Now! in a segment entitled, quote, Negotiations Still the Only Way Forward to End Ukraine War, end quote, in which she bashes the Democrats for approving military aid packages to Ukraine, and applauds that, quote, it's being questioned by Donald Trump, who says that if he were president, this war wouldn't happen, that he would have probably talked to Putin, which is right, end quote. Yeah, she actually said that, lauding Trump as some kind of a peacemaker, as Chomsky has also done, as we discussed on our podcast of May 21st. On October 17th on Twitter, Medea Benjamin again hailed Donald Trump openly for uh, calling for negotiations over Ukraine. And back in July, she tweeted, quote, What does it say about the Democrats in Congress when the best person on Ukraine is Marjorie Taylor Greene? End quote. This by way of retweeting some typical self-righteous word salad from MTG, in which she calls Ukraine, not even the Ukraine war, but just Ukraine itself, quote, the MIC's new Iraq, end quote, meaning the military-industrial complex. Again, pseudo-peacenik crap that renders the Ukrainians absolutely invisible, and views them only as pawns in the great power game. So repulsive. Okay, next up is Jill Stein, former presidential candidate of the U.S. Green Party, and essentially a stateside Kremlin political operative, I would assume unpaid, although I don't know. As the Daily Mail writes from the text, on the very night the Kremlin despot invaded the country, Miss Stein went on a bizarre Twitter rant that backed Russia's reasoning for the war by blaming U.S. and NATO provocations. 
Quote, in 2014, the U.S. backed a coup in Ukraine, led by far-right insurrectionists, she wrote of the 2014 Maidan revolution. Quote, the U.S. kept pouring weapons into Ukraine and peddling the pipe dream of NATO membership, sabotaging the actual solution for peace and security, end quote. Now, this is transparent bosh. So many different ways. The Maidan revolution was a sustained, months-long popular uprising, not a coup, and not led by far-right insurrectionists. Its basic politics were anti-corruption and pro-democratic, and it was overwhelmingly nonviolent in the face of harsh repression from the Kremlin-aligned Yanukovych regime, as we discussed on our podcast of August 12th. And the U.S. was not peddling the pipe dream of NATO membership. The U.S. was responding reluctantly to Ukraine's urgent petitioning to join NATO after Russia began seizing pieces of Ukrainian territory in 2014, as we discussed on our podcast of May 21st. And what is Jill's actual solution for peace and security, as she puts it, as if that were such an easy question. Letting Putin reabsorb Ukraine and Georgia and the Baltics and rebuild the Russian Empire? Is that her solution? And here we go again with talking over the people of the region. But I again first became aware of exactly how sinister Stein's politics are in December 2015, just after Putin launched his military intervention in Syria. On December 10th of that year, Jill Stein dined with Putin at a Moscow confab sponsored by Kremlin state media mouthpiece RT, and actually sat at the same table as Putin and his top staff and advisors. Also sitting at the table was Donald Trump's then-military advisor, retired General Mike Flynn, at that same table. The same Mike Flynn, who was a Pentagon GWAT hardliner, and had already, at that point, called for the destruction of Raqqa, quote-unquote, to defeat ISIS, and boasted that he was, quote, at war with Islam, end quote. So a nice convergence with Putin's agenda there. He later became Trump's national security advisor and was the most aggressive voice in the last days of the Trump administration in 2021, explicitly pressing for a coup d'etat, a declaration of a state of emergency and a redo of the election under military control. Interesting company for peacenik Jill Stein, eh? Stein issued a viral YouTube statement from Red Square during the Moscow trip filled with uh, predictable anti-war rhetoric and containing not a syllable of criticism either for Flynn or for her Kremlin hosts, who were then busy bombing the hell out of Syria. In fact, she boasted in the video that Putin had told her that he, quote, agrees with her on many issues, quote, unquote. 
Now, uh, she, years later, after having been called out on this unseemly affair, uh, tried to clean it up. She published a statement on Facebook in 2017 admitting that she sat at the table with the sinister duo Putin and Flynn, but saying she, quote, didn't actually talk to either of them (laughs) and portraying her mission as a peace offensive, quote-unquote, to call out the U.S. and Russia on their militarism, quote-unquote. This is utterly disingenuous. She sat at the same small table, small round table, you can see the pictures of it, as Putin and Flynn, but didn't talk to them? Wow, that's pretty impolite. And also completely contradicted by her own statements in which she said she did talk with Putin and said that the Russian strongman agreed with her on many issues, quote-unquote, or agrees with me on many issues, was the actual verbatim, of course, in her mouth. And when has she ever, quote, called out Russia on its Syria intervention or anything else? Certainly not in her Red Square video, which was utterly uncritical of her hosts, She wasn't there to call out Putin, but to launder his image for stateside peaceniks. Also attending that same RT confab, although not seated at the table of honor with Putin and Flynn and Stein, was Max Blumenthal, another presumably unpaid stateside Russian propaganda operative whose work is promoted relentlessly on RT and Sputnik, the two chief Kremlin propaganda organs for foreign consumption. It should also be noted that Stein repeatedly in 2016 portrayed Hillary Clinton as the greater threat than Trump, telling an interviewer in October of that year, just before the election, quote, Hillary's policies are much scarier than Donald Trump who does not want to go to war with Russia, end quote. And on November 2nd, 2015, Stein issued a statement accusing President Barack Obama of trying to engineer, quote, regime change in Syria, unquote, and urging that the U.S. instead work with Syria, Russia, and Iran to, quote, restore all of Syria to control by the government rather than jihadi rebels, end quote. This, as Russia and the Assad regime were undertaking a massive bombardment campaign of rebel-held territory in Syria. And of course, those rebels were not all jihadis. And in any case, there are civilians down there, hello? And the crowning irony is that when the U.S. did military intervene in Syria, also that year, It was not against the Assad regime, but against ISIS. In other words, on the side of the Assad regime. So Jill basically got what she wanted. I don't know what she was complaining about. And finally, the uh, last entry among the panelists is Claudia de la Cruz, the co-executive director of the People's Forum. I don't know much about her, but I do have questions about the mysterious sources of funding for the People's Forum which has a very extensive storefront operation at 320 West 37th Street, not exactly a low-rent location for a bunch of supposed rad lefties. Just curious. 
And of course, it goes without saying, there is not a single Ukrainian on the panel. If they had good intentions, they could have invited some of the progressive Ukrainian voices that we have highlighted here on the Counter Vortex over the past months, such as Anatoly Dubovnik and Sergei Chevchenko of Ukraine's Revolutionary Confederation of Anarcho-Syndicalists, who were interviewed in the British anarchist journal Freedom, which we quoted from on the Counter Vortex podcast of October 15th. They could have invited Yulia Yurchenko of the Ukrainian left opposition group Sotsialny Ruk, Social Movement, and author of the book Ukraine and the Empire of Capital from Marketization to Armed Conflict, which we discussed on the Counter Vortex podcast of June 25th, or Taras Bilyus, another Sotsialny Ruk supporter and the editor of the online Commons, a journal of social criticism, and currently serving in Ukraine's Territorial Defense Forces, the Mobilized Reserve Force, and who, given credit where it is due, was featured in August on International Viewpoint, the uh, British Journal of the Fourth International, or another Sotsialny Ruk supporter, the historian Vladislav Starodubtsev, who, again, giving credit where it is due, was interviewed in September by the Real News under the title, One Ukrainian Democratic Socialist Opinion on the War. I don't like everything Real News has done, and I think their name is rather presumptuous, like nobody else is real, everyone is fake news except them, whatever. But I do give them major creds for running this interview in which Starodubtsev was queried about this pro-surrender position advocated by Western peaceniks and said, quote, I would respond very easily that if you always compromise with fascist powers and dictators, you will come to the period that there will be nothing to compromise left, end quote. Slightly stilted English, perhaps, but a far more realistic perspective than that being proffered by the pro-surrender crowd. They could have invited the independent journalist and activist Artem Chapai, who is Noam Chomsky's Ukrainian translator, yet who called Chomsky out in an open letter for abetting Russian propaganda after the war began. But all these Ukrainian voices, whatever strong criticism they may have of the neoliberal government of Volodymyr Zelensky, are unequivocal on the need to defend Ukraine against Russian imperialist assault. Whereas this panel at the People's Forum is pro-Russian imperialism and even pro-U.S. imperialism calling on the U.S. to negotiate as if it has any business doing so on behalf of Ukraine, calling for the great powers to decide the fate of smaller nations is campism, not anti-imperialism. Do not flatter this by calling it anti-imperialism. 
And if you oppose the war in Ukraine, you should be protesting first and foremost Vladimir Putin. As the Ukrainians have said over and over, if Putin stops fighting, the war ends. If Ukraine stops fighting, Ukraine ends. And currently, Kyiv is in darkness each night due to rolling power outages. The government has imposed to prevent a complete collapse of Ukraine's national electrical grid after repeated Russian airstrikes. Russia, in retreat on the ground, is retaliating with missile strikes targeting Ukraine's energy infrastructure. And this with the bitter Ukrainian winter approaching. Water was cut off to the city of Kyiv for a day after Russian strikes on pumping stations last week with more threatened. This is an attempt to make life unlivable for the Ukrainian civil population and break their will. An explicit targeting of civilian infrastructure, clearly war crimes and arguably crimes against humanity. And this is what legitimate anti-war voices must be protesting first and foremost. And in fact, just today, Saturday, November 5th, the New York Ukrainian community, organized by groups such as Razam for Ukraine, you can Google them, held a rally in Times Square here in Manhattan in support of the Ukrainian resistance to the Russian aggression. And I understand they are also considering holding a protest outside the People's Forum on November 19th against this pseudo-pacifist war propaganda event. Unfortunately, I probably won't be able to make it because it's a Saturday and I work weekends, but I wish them the best. And I call on any progressives of goodwill who will be attending this event to challenge the speakers during the Q&A period and put the difficult questions to them and not just swallow the propaganda undigested. It really isn't good for you. This has been Bill Weinberg with the Counter Vortex. Check us out online at countervortex.org, where everything that I've been ranting about tonight is hyperlinked and documented. Please support us on Patreon. We need your support to keep going with this project. Patreon.com slash countervortex. Even a buck a week will really help. Join the Counter Vortex. Join the resistance and rant on you next time.